Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not, right, multifocal. Exactly not multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Good morning, I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, and welcome to Open Your Eyes Radio. Please listen as I discuss the newest information in the world of health, nutrition, and sports every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Central Time on AM 1280, The Patriot. Also, please share your thoughts by emailing me at drkerrygelb at gmail.com. That's D-R-K-E-R-R-Y at gmail.com. And we have a return guest today, Dr. Ted Naiman. Dr. Ted Naiman is a board-certified family uh, medicine physician in Seattle. He concentrates on diet, exercise, how to help people lose weight. And part one, we talked about some of the drugs that are the new drugs, uh, the Ozempic type drugs. And so go back and listen to that if you want to learn about the drugs. In this episode, we're going to talk more about satiety and weight loss. And a, a little bit, he'll give us a little sneak peek about his new book coming out. So, Dr. Naiman, welcome back. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you. So, tell me, what is satiety? Satiety is literally the uh, opposite of hunger. So, hunger is this feeling we're all familiar with where you just need to eat. Uh, satiety is the opposite. You don't need to eat. You're, you're satiated. You're full. You, you're not hungry. It's opposite of hunger. That's the simplest explanation. And what foods give us the most satiety and which foods give us the least? So this is very evidence-based. There are uh, certain things that we know for a fact create higher satiety for fewer calories. Protein, um, highest satiety of any macronutrient. Uh, foods with more weight and volume, which is mostly water. So the higher the water content of food, the lower the energy density and the fewer calories people are going to eat. Um, fiber, the more fiber in something, the more satiating it is. Uh, micronutrients, uh, certain micronutrients are very satiating like potassium and calcium, these minerals and uh, uh, folate and vitamin C, things that tend to just add calories without giving you any satiety, refined carbs, sugar and flour, refined fat, oil, uh, refined energy of any kind, such as alcohol, um, these things are basically just pure calories stripped of all the water and fiber and protein and micronutrients and minerals. So you're getting calories without a lot of satiety. So that's basically the breakdown. You know, when we look at food, 
and uh, we talked about satiety and uh, minerals that help us with satiety, like potassium and calcium. I know people are going to be listening to this. Should they run out and get calcium and potassium pills? Um, it, well, it doesn't seem to work as well outside of a food matrix. So there are some studies in, uh, if you look at people who are frankly deficient in calcium and you put them on a calcium supplement daily versus placebo, they will actually eat fewer calories with the calcium supplement. So there's a tiny, tiny bit of truth there. Um, but for the most part, you're talking about foods that are high in these minerals. Uh, potassium is tragic. Only 2% of Americans hit the RDA, USRDA for potassium. This is the worst one of all, perhaps. Potassium is, we call it a macro mineral because it's a mineral you need in a really huge amount. You need more of this mineral than anything else in your diet. I mean, you really want four or 5,000 milligrams a day. That's, you know, five grams. That's a lot of potassium. But potassium's only in healthy food. You know, your fish and your salad and just super healthy stuff. All of your processed and refined foods have basically none in them at all. So this is something that helps with tidy, but we're eating the wrong foods and we don't get enough of it. And then you probably eat more downstream. Taking a supplement doesn't really seem to work as well, but it probably would to a tiny extent. Now, do we have to worry about taking potassium as far as affecting our heart? Because I know potassium has to be in a very specific range. If it's too low, it's no good. If it's too high, it's no good. And we have to worry about, you know, about our heart because of it. All right. So potassium is very interesting. Um, if you have kidney failure, you can't excrete potassium. And if you eat too much, uh, you'll basically die of a cardiac arrhythmia. Your heart stops. This is a, this is a how we uh, kill people via lethal injection. Um, uh, we give them a bunch of potassium intravenously. And anyone with normal kidneys can eat all the potassium they want, pee it right out, no problem. But if you have kidney failure and you eat too much potassium, you can't excrete it, your levels go too high, and you can get a cardiac arrhythmia. And for that reason, potassium is the one over-the-counter supplement that's extremely limited. You can't buy a potassium pill that's more than 99 milligrams. Um, so it's extremely, and you know, I said a minute ago, you want 5,000 milligrams a day. So you'd have to take 50 of them to get enough potassium for your USRDA. So uh, this is something that's very hard to get with a supplement because there's somebody out there who has kidney failure, doesn't know it. And if they take a bunch of potassium pills, they could actually have a cardiac arrhythmia. Most of us luckily don't have to worry about that. But if you do have any kidney problems, you should not be supplementing potassium without talking to your doctor. You know, in, in last week, we talked about people who do everything right and they just can't lose weight. And is it eat less or eat eat better? What's more important? Or are they both? Obviously, they're both important. But what do you think is more important or easier to do? Well, what you eat directly determines how much you're going to eat, full stop. And if you're eating donuts and cookies and all these low protein, low satiety per calorie foods that are hedonic and tasty and delicious, you'll just eat way, way more of them. Um, but if you choose foods that has a higher satiety per calorie, you're gonna automatically eat less. It's like, uh, you know, potato chips. These are um, dehydrated, so they're very, very light. And there's, they're just carbs and fats with no water and very little fiber. And potato, you can, if you eat a one pound bag of potato chips, that's your whole day's supply of calories. That's, you know, 
over 2,000 calories, 16 ounces of potato chips. But most humans eat uh, three or four pounds of food a day uh, because you need that weight and volume in your stomach to make you feel full. This actually stimulates the GLP-1 uh, and creatine hormones that make you feel satiated. So if you got all your calories from a one pound of dehydrated, high carb, high fat, tasty, delicious potato chips, you're still gonna be hungry because you got no protein and no weight in volume because there's no water and no fiber and no bulk. So uh, that's why potato chips are the number one food associated with obesity. The whole bag of potato chips only weighs a pound, but it's all your calories for the day. You're done eating, sorry, had 30 grams of protein. So you're literally gonna die of, of protein malnourishment. And this is part of why we have obesity epidemic. All these tasty, delicious, hedonic foods are devoid of water and fiber and protein, the things that actually create satiety. So you talk about the most obesogenic food, which are potato chips, chocolate chip cookies. What's the least, what's the least obesogenic food? <laughs> so if you look at the food with the very highest satiety and the very lowest calories, it's things like celery and watercress and different types of lettuce and spinach and green vegetables. Um, most of your green vegetables are actually about 40% protein by calories. And so full of fiber and water and micronutrients that the calories are, you know, almost negative. And so these are the least obesogenic foods on earth, basically green vegetables. And where do potatoes fall? You know, people love potatoes. Where do they fall on that scale, on the uh, satiety scale? Right. So uh, like a boiled potato is actually not too bad. If you don't add any fat to it and you don't add any salt to it, um, it's not terribly hedonic. It has a lot of weight and volume. It's pretty good on a zero to 100 satiety per calorie scale. Uh, potatoes are in the mid 40s, um, uh, like a boiled potato. It's actually quite reasonable. And I have no problem with that. The problem is if you dehydrate it and soak it in oil, where it's 50% carbs and 50% fat in a potato chip, you're just gonna massively overconsume it. And you lost all of that water and all of that fiber and anything that would basically make it more satiating. So yeah, I love plain potatoes. I think that's perfectly, perfectly great. Just don't put a bunch of fat on it. You know, I, I, there's a whole concept of resistant starch that I wanna ask you about after the break. And they said that rice and potatoes, if they're cold, they become a resistant starch and good for the bacteria in your gut and it feeds the gut, but if it's, if it's hot, then it's gonna raise your insulin levels, it's gonna raise your sugar levels. And I, I find that to be uh, you know, a very interesting concept. If it's cold, it's good, if it's hot, it's not so good. I wanna to talk to you about exercise and satiety and it's, you know, I go to the gym all the time. I'm in the gym and I see the same people exercising and I, they never seem to lose a pound. Does exercise help us lose weight or is it really not a great way to drive weight loss? So the way it works, just a really simple, uh, you have to diet to lose weight and then you have to exercise to maintain weight loss. That's really how it breaks down. Uh, exercise is terrible by itself for weight loss, but it's uh, an absolute requirement for weight loss maintenance. So you really want to lose the weight with diet and then maintain it uh, indefinitely with higher physical activity levels and exercise. So that's, that's exactly how it's supposed to work. And there's this whole concept of VO2 max. 
if you have good VO2 max, you're going to live longer. And there's studies to prove that. Tell us what VO2 max is and tell us how we could increase it so we can live longer. Right. VO2 max is just how much oxygen can you can your body consume uh, per minute if you're exercising all out at your highest intensity. And the higher that number is, the better your cardiorespiratory fitness. And it, it's measuring your, your whole system, basically your cardiac output and your heart stroke volume and how much blood you can circulate and how much oxygen you can hold and how much capillaries are in your muscles and how many muscles you have and, and how hard you can work all those muscles. And having high VO2 max means your entire cardiorespiratory system, top to bottom, is really good. Your heart, your circulation, your blood flow, your capillaries, your muscles, your, uh, your ability to exercise with high intensity. And for that reason, because VO2 max is measuring all of this stuff end to end, uh, high VO2 max is more associated with longevity than literally any other single number you could ever measure in any one period. And this is basically cardio fitness. And it is something everyone should be working on. You want your VO2 max to be as high as possible. You want your cardiorespiratory fitness to be as high as possible. And the only way to do that is progressive overload. You have to be pushing your cardio system you know, more or less, maybe not quite as hard as you can, but 90% as hard as you can or higher. And only then are you going to get these positive adaptations of improved VO2 max. So we're talking about high-end cardio here. You really want to go hard. I recommend people at least once a week do some very, very high-end cardio where they're uh, getting close to their maximum heart rate and really trying to up the intensity because that will drive these adaptations of higher VO2 max and better cardiorespiratory fitness. What do you think are the best exercises to do? Would it, would it be sprinting? Would it be like on, on the bike where you're going as fast as you can for 30 seconds and then slowing down for a minute and a half and then doing another rep as fast as you can for 30 seconds or you know, running as fast as you can on a treadmill than walking? What do you think is the best way to build the VO2 max? Or it doesn't matter as long as you're doing one of those. Well, any one of those is going to build VO2 max. If you're if you're pushing the intensity, if you're going as hard as you can for as long as you can, you will build VO2 max with any of those approaches. However, we do have some studies looking at different um, ways of doing it. Uh, really fast intervals, you know, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, or just long, steady state as fast as you can go. And and what really seems to be the most effective is basically intervals where you go really hard for four minutes. And then you back off a little and go easier, you know, catch your breath a little for four minutes. So like so four minutes on, four minutes off, that would be like um, running with the highest speed you can maintain for four minutes and then running, you know, at a lower intensity, more of a jog for another four minutes and doing that back and forth. In some studies, we had people doing, you know, four cycles of four minutes on, four minutes off and really improving VO2 max higher than anything else. Um, I think the best study had people doing this three times a week, four minutes on, four minutes off for four cycles, and VO2 went up really uh, quite significantly within just a few months. And so I do like sprint intervals. You can do this on a spin bike. You can do this on a rowing machine. You can just go outside and, and run. Uh, you could do squat jumps. You could do any kind of exercise the more of your body it involves the better so the full body ones are better like an elliptical 
or an assault bike or that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, intervals are great for raising VO2 max. And you know, you go into the doctor, you know, or the say cardiologist, and they're measuring. Uh, uh, they're putting you on the treadmill, and and but no one seems to be measuring at regular doctor's office VO two max. How do you measure it? Right. So you basically have to have a respiratory cart where you're uh, wearing either something on your nose or mouth to capture all of the air that you breathe in and breathe out. And you're just looking at the ratio of oxygen consumed and uh, carbon dioxide exhaled. So it's kind of technically challenging. You have to be exercising and have something strapped to your face to, to measure the gases you're inhaling and exhaling. So to be honest, most people don't have access to that and are never going to have this kind of testing. Uh, so then your next best thing is to estimate it with um, some type of device. Like I'm a huge fan of uh, Apple Watch. Uh, this will actually estimate your VO2 max over time. And it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And it will tell you if you're getting better or worse. And so I do like um, Apple Watch. It is a good way to kind of keep an eye on your VO2 max. So Apple Watch actually tells you what VO, it, it comes out as VO2 max, what it is. Right, if you do enough uh, workouts, it's constantly tracking that and it is calculating roughly based on your heart rate and your uh, activity, what your VO2 max is. And it's a reasonable estimation. You know, uh, there was a book called Burn by the doctor, I think Panzer is it? Dr. Panzer. And he, in that book, he taught us some very interesting uh, facts. And I was wondering if you could kind of discuss that a little bit. Right. So Herman Ponzer basically studies um, energy metabolism. He, he uses uh, doubly labeled water techniques, uh, which is this way, really cool way of figuring out exactly how many calories people are burning. And what he figured out is that everybody's eating and burning the same number of calories. So he compared um, overweight Western, you know, American people to like uh, hunter-gatherers like the Hadza, where everyone's super skinny. And it, uh, interestingly, these two groups of people, they're eating and burning about the same number of calories per day, if you look at it. Um, you know, per uh, lean body mass, the the, the intake and out uh, and expenditures are about the same, but the way we're expending these calories is different. In America, exercise and step count is way lower, and we're burning these calories to just sit on the couch and maintain a much larger body size. Versus the Hadza are have way tinier body size, and then they walk 20,000 steps a day and are physically active for two and a half hours. Uh, so we see this, um, the Hadza, you know, having half the body fat percentage or lower, but then doing double, triple, quadruple the physical activity and step count and moving around. And there seems to be a trade-off. You can expend your energy by just sitting there and being way fatter because the body size is the biggest determinant of how much calories you burn every day. Or you can be skinnier and walk around a lot more. That's part of why I said that the best way to maintain weight loss is physical activity. Once if you have a large body size, you're burning 3,000 calories a day. When you shrink down, you're only burning 2,000 calories a day with a body size because it's so much smaller. So you have to walk 1,000 calories a day. So you can still eat and burn the same 3,000 calories 
um, because your body likes this high energy flux where you're eating a lot and burning a lot. That's why people, when they lose weight, they have to be more physically active or they're just going to slowly regain and go up to eating and burning the same amount of calories from having a large body, body again. So you can either, um, basically the, the take home of his book is you're going to eat the same amount of calories no matter what. And you can either just be larger or move more. And it's, it's kind of a, the simple breakdown. It's, 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 it's an interesting concept uh, that, that he has in that book. So the different types of exercises, we have, we have weight training, we have uh, cardio training, and then we just have movement. We're moving all the time. So if you, is there anything else that we should be doing? And if you could kind of talk about the three that you need, all three of those, to really, uh, to really lose, to lose weight the way you're supposed to. Yeah, no, you nailed that. There's really just these three types of exercise. One is cardio and VO2 max. And, and you get better at cardio by progressively overloading your cardio, just going harder and for longer. Then there's general movement. Step count is a really good way of tracking that. Uh, I, I'm not affiliated with Apple, but again, your Apple watch is just tracking your step count. You want to get at least to 8,000 a day maybe even 10 or 12,000. Uh, so general movement, step count, uh, cardio, and VO2 max, it's uh, you progressively overload by just going harder with the cardio. And then there's resistance training. Everyone should be doing full body resistance training, push, pull, legs, at least twice a week, um, either with body weight, you know, push-ups, pull-ups, squats, or going to the gym and using machines or dumbbells or whatever you want. But uh, everybody should be doing cardio you know at least once or twice a week high-end cardio resistance training full body at least twice a week and then step count daily movement it's uh, those are the three buckets of exercise and how about sleep and stress as we're coming up to the break but sleep and stress that's important as well right uh sleep is huge you really want to protect your sleep uh this is very very important uh sleep is probably the greatest performance enhancing drug of all time. So I think it's a uh, very important stress is a big deal, but I'm a less of an expert on how to minimize stress, to be honest. Uh, this is Dr. Kerry Gell for open your eyes radio on AM 1280 of the Patriot. We're speaking with Dr. Ted Naiman. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's helping us lose weight and get healthy. We'll be back right after the break. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. We're back with Dr. Ted Naiman. We're talking exercise. We're talking weight loss. We talked, and last week we talked about how we could use different types of medication to help us with weight loss. This time we're talking about more diet and exercise. And people always want to know, what is better, low-carb, low-fat? What do the studies show us and what does your experience show us? There's studies, there's a Kevin Hall studies, and there's experience. Tell us what, what you think. All right. So there's this eternal low-carb versus low-fat war going on. You know, it's low-carb, low-fat, low-carb. <clears throat> Reality is they're almost interchangeable. So if you get your protein percent high enough and your fiber and your water and your micronutrients and your micronutrient density you can kind of trade off fats for carbs 
interchangeably and it's not a big deal either way we have like the diet fits trial which is this huge very well done trial comparing low carb to low fat and the results were absolutely identical there doesn't seem to be a major difference if uh, protein's the same and fiber's the same and energy density is the same and all these other satiety factors the carb versus fat is very interchangeable and so if you have a preference for one or the other that's fine my advice to most people is to play it down the middle and try to be slightly low carb and low fat most of the time. If you if you look at the uh, macros we were eating before the obesity epidemic, you know, 67 years ago, and now uh, protein's exactly the same, and carbs and fats both went up by a couple hundred calories a day. We're eating, you know, 300 calories more from carbs and 300 calories more from fat, mostly from sugar and flour and oil, refined carbs and refined fats. So if you can just be a little bit low carb and a little bit low fat all the time uh, and prioritize the heck out of protein, then you're basically going to be winning and you don't have to go to the extremes of low carb or low fat. Um, you can be a zero carb and very low fat. It's possible. But I think optimal is, you know, somewhere in between, maybe tailored to individual preference. And it doesn't really matter. This is a kind of a false dichotomy, just like plants versus animals, like we were talking last week. It's really not about plants versus animals, and it's really not about carbs versus fat. And, you know, the if we look at some of the traditional diets, like the Asian diets, the Okinawan diet, they reported low protein. They only had about 10% protein, but they're not very heavy and they live a very long time. So can you put, tell us what's going on there? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the Okinawan diet. They're eating these <clears throat> wild sweet potatoes and their diet is, you know, like 9, 10, 11, 12% protein, very low, but the energy density is extremely low. The fiber is extremely high. And they're basically pulling these other levers of satiety per calorie. You can you can be successful anytime you either get protein really high or energy density really low or fiber really high or carbs really low or fat really low. You can play with all these different levers. And the Okinawan diet happens to be one where protein's not the lever they're using. They're using fiber and low energy density. Uh, there are other, you know, diet, if you look like the Inuit, for example, they're gonna eat way more fat. Uh, and a higher energy density and no fiber, but the protein percent is extremely high. So you're, you're going to have these different groups being successful or not successful by pulling any one of these levers. And that's how uh, you can see groups be so different, but still successful, like your fruititarians so are super low protein, but the uh, water and fiber is extremely high, energy density is extremely low, they're all really skinny. Uh, your bodybuilders, you know, 40% protein, and then they don't care whether they're eating carbs or fats. They're interchangeable, and they're very lean as well. So you can kind of use any of these levers, and that's what the satiety per calorie approach is all about, knowing what improves satiety per calorie, and then just picking whichever one you like the most or adding them all together a little bit. How can we find the satiety per calorie ratio foods that we could tell uh, which foods are high or low on that scale so we know how to eat more satiating foods. Right. Well, I'm working uh, with uh, the folks at Diet Doctor, dietdoctor.com, uh, on a new company called Hava, and they're building an app that will have a, 
uh, just an easy way to calculate satiety per calorie of different foods. And it's really just looking at protein percent and fiber content and water and energy density and uh, hedonics and all these things together. So you can kind of quickly and easily get an idea for which foods are good or which foods are bad. Um, so it's really hard to calculate right now. And that's why the general idea is just substituting out a food for something that's slightly higher in protein or high in fiber or lower in fat or lower in carbs. And these are just minor little substitutions. So if you eat uh, eggs and bacon for breakfast, you know, instead of eggs and bacon, maybe half, uh, maybe two eggs and two egg whites, maybe go from uh, regular bacon to Canadian bacon or turkey bacon or something that's lower in fat. You're getting the same amount of protein or more protein in the case of egg whites, and you're getting less fat. Uh, this is why people eat, you know, whole wheat bread or low carb tortillas or a low fat cheese. Anytime you substitute something out for something that's lower in carbs or lower in fat or higher in protein or higher in fiber, you're basically improving satiety per calorie. So the way it works is you just substitute out the foods you're eating for something that's a little bit better in terms of protein and fiber and a little bit lower in carbs and fats. And one will have, uh, have that ready where people could go to their website and see which are the high satiety foods. Uh, well, hopefully it'll be finished in a couple of months. Uh, if you go to hava.co, H-A-V-A.co, uh, you can sign up for a email list to find out more about it. But they're, we're basically building this app at the moment. I have a calculator that does this, and we're just trying to get it ready for prime time. And before we were talking about resistant starch, should the potatoes be cold? Should the rice be cold? Uh, it's not as good if it's hot. Can you talk a little bit about that whole concept of resistant starch? Absolutely. This is a real thing. Uh, cooked and cold starches like potatoes and rice, uh, basically you will have a change to the starch in the food where it is resistant to digestion and more of it's available to the microbiome and uh, less of it's absorbed into your body. So we do see carbs that are cooked and cold having a lower glycemic index, lower glycemic load, uh, higher satiety per calorie. It's beneficial. Um, however, it's you're talking about single digit percentages, right? You're talking about at the very, very best, 10% lower on things like glycemic load and glycemic index and um, net carbs and things like that. So it is beneficial, but it, it's, you know, of limited benefit. I don't know that you need to expend all of your efforts into just cooking and cooling all of your carbs. That's going to help a little bit. It's another tool in the toolbox, but I wouldn't like have an over-reliance on just that strategy. And where does rice fall in on the satiety index? People love rice. Unfortunately, rice is probably the worst grain of all. Um, white rice, you know, it's only about 11% protein. Most of your other grains are higher. Wheat uh, is higher. Oats are higher. Uh, potatoes uh, are better in terms of potassium and energy density. And so rice is one of the worst <laughs> grains, unfortunately. But uh, it's still a fairly low energy density food. It's maybe one kilocalorie per gram. So it's very, it's hard to overeat and it's non-terrible. I, uh, it's not my very favorite. So it's an okay food to eat sometimes, but I do encourage people to ratio if you're eating uh, protein and a vegetable and some rice, 
Maybe you want more protein and vegetables and less rice, just ratioing the rice down a little bit because it's not the greatest. You know, fat was the big thing uh, a while ago and the bulletproof coffee and people putting, I guess, coconut oil in their coffee or whatever. What do you think about being on a high fat, you know, instead of having low fat cottage cheese, having full fat cottage cheese, it's less, maybe less processed. Could it be better for us? I do think that people have success whenever they get to the extremes of low carb or low fat. And the reason for that is the most hedonic and tasty and delicious foods are right in the middle, like 50-50. So if you look at the most obesogenic macros you can get to feed like a lab rat or a, a laboratory animal, it's you know fairly low protein, 10% protein, and then 45% each carbs and fats. These are the macros of like a Reese's peanut butter cup, for example, and it's just so tasty and delicious. And if you've got lowish protein and equal amounts, high carb and high fat, you're going to overeat that for sure, especially if it's a high energy density like the peanut butter cup, right? So you can actually get your, either your carbs really low and keep the fat high or your fat really low and keep the carbs high. And you're going to actually be more successful because you're just going to eat less of foods because they're less hedonic. And so anything that gets you away from this middle ground where things are super delicious and tasty is going to be helpful. And you can absolutely make a very low carb, very high fat diet successful. And a lot of people have had great success on this sort of ketogenic diet. I have no problem with that. And I was surprised that raspberries were very high on the satiety scale. It's, yeah, they have an absurd... Is that typical with fruit or is it just raspberries? Um, most fruits, okay, but berries in particular have just very, very low net carbs, very, very high fiber. The uh, raspberries have absurdly high fiber and water, and you would literally have to eat a dozen pounds of raspberries to get a day's worth of calories. And it's extremely high satiety per calorie. And I was surprised that butter is so low on the satiety scale. It's, it's only six out of 100. And if you eat butter, you're going to be hungry. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's face it. Uh, you know, if you just eat uh, like a, uh, a half a cup of sugar and a half a cup of oil is entire day's supply of calories for a small female, for example. So you're eating a whole stick of butter. That's half your calories for the day. And you got no protein and very few micronutrients. So this is just a really concentrated form of calories. It's not great for satiety per calorie. Uh, the calories are really high. I wanted to ask you about ultra-processed food. Kevin Hall did this amazing study on ultra-processed food, basically using the same amount of carbs, I assume the same amount of calories, and same amount of sugar and protein or whatever, but one was processed food and the other one was real food. And what happened? Right, right. So uh, Kevin Hall, I love that guy. Really well-designed study. Um, <clears throat> tried to match protein and fiber and fat and carbs. And uh, all these things were matched. Uh, one diet was ultra-processed and the other wasn't. Uh, the ultra-processed diet, people ate hundreds more calories per day and just automatically got fatter. Both groups uh, rated equal satiety. They were both eating to satiety. And they both um, basically ate as much as they wanted. Calories were not fixed or matched. You could eat, you were just presented with twice as much food as you needed, and you ate as much as you wanted. So it was eating to satiety, 
um, what we call an ad lib study, where you just eat till you're not hungry. That's what everyone does, right? And uh, the ultra processed group ate hundreds more calories per day and immediately got fatter. Uh, honestly, the big driver there was energy density. The ultra processed diet was about double the energy density of the unprocessed diet. So, uh, you know, humans eat uh, three to four or five pounds of food a day. You just eat until you get a certain amount of protein and a certain weight and volume of food. And if you've got food twice the energy density, you're just going to eat more calories. That's uh, that's why that's the secret of low energy density foods. You know, if you're eating something like a carrot that's really low in energy density, you have to eat 18 pounds of carrots a day to have your uh, enough calories for for the day, you know, 2,400 calories. So uh, there's just an absurd amount of weight and volume and fiber and uh, energy density is a really big deal. It's probably the second most important driver of overall calorie intake. And that's basically what that study proved in my opinion. And that's why anything that's been processed is gonna have a higher energy density typically because what we mostly process and refine are carbs and fats. I mean, I think that that study was amazing because the people that ate the processed food ate 500 more calories per day. I mean, no wonder people are getting so heavy because 63% of what we eat is processed food at what Americans eat. And not what you eat or what I eat, but what the typical American eats. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it's easy, you know, it's easy to pick up a cookie. It's easy to pick up a potato chip. But, you know, the food could be just as tasty if they're eating uh, nutrient-dense food, foods that have uh, satiety. You just kind of get have to get used to eating that way. And how long, do, you know, from your... You know, you see patients all the time. This is what you do. How long does it usually take for a patient to convert over once they decide to they're going to start eating healthy that they, they decide, OK, I got I got to make a change. You know, I got kids. I don't want I don't want to have a stroke. I don't want to have a heart attack. I got to make a change. Is it number one? How long does it usually take? And number two, is it better to change a whole lot of things at once or change it a little bit more gradually? I think it's better to do gradually. I really, I, I, I prefer gradual. Um, it's just like resistance training. You know, if I just, if you haven't ever worked out before and I'm making you try to bench 500 pounds, you're just gonna, it's gonna be horrible and you're gonna die and it's, you're not gonna do it again. Um, but if it's this progressive overload thing where, okay, today we're just gonna do like 10 pushups and that's it. And then next time we'll try to do maybe 11 and you just, you know, slowly work your way up to benching 500 pounds uh, years down the road. Uh, this sort of gradual progression, I think, is far more sustainable. People uh, stick with it better. So I like gradual. And my advice to everybody is to take all the foods you're eating now and just make these tiny substitutions to something with slightly higher satiety per calorie. It's going to be higher in protein or fiber or water. It's going to be lower in carbs or fats or alcohol. And you just make little substitutions that you could sustain forever. And um, unfortunately, your food's not quite as amazing. So like, I feel like a lot of my patients, when they first show up, they're just eating whatever sounds the very tastiest, right? Every food they eat is a 10 out of 10, uh, pleasurable, hedonic, tasty, delicious. You know, they just go to Starbucks and they get the Trente Frappuccino and it's amazing and it's 10 out of 10. Uh, and then what you have to do is figure out, okay, what if I had 
Uh, you know, if I made a really tasty protein shake that was like a 7 out of 10, it's not quite as delicious, but it's way higher satiety per calorie. It's going to get me closer to my goals, and it's tasty enough that I could actually do that long term. You know what I mean? Um, could people uh, switch from eating bacon every single morning to like Canadian bacon? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could actually do that. Now, if you just decided, okay, I'm just going to eat like some tasteless bland gruel for breakfast every morning from now on it's that's not going to work you're just going to do that for a week and then you're going to absolutely rage quit and that'll be that so you do want to progressively overload this just like you would exercise and you do it by making these tiny little substitutions over and over and over again it's pretty boring it's not very dramatic it's not terribly sexy but uh it's it's all about the long-term view and what you can sustain and what you're willing to commit to long term. So I like little changes uh, done over and over again. And you you mentioned smoothies. Do you have a uh, a preference between a smoothie juicing? What do you think the pros and cons of each one of them are? And do you think that one will make you hungrier sooner than the other? And so, uh, first of all, eating solid food is always higher satiety per calorie than drinking something. Just because the act of chewing and uh, slows you down, the, the the higher the surface hardness of the food, the better the satiety per calorie. So if you have to chew something a thousand times because it's really tough and hard, you're actually going to have better satiety per calorie than if you can just drink something. You, know, you drink your bulletproof coffee, that's you know 800 calories in 10 seconds. But if you try to get 800 calories from celery, you're going to be chewing all day long like a cow. And that's going to just be this ridiculous amount of satiety per calorie. So uh, the harder the food is, the better. But there's this convenience factor, too, where you don't have time to necessarily chew celery all day or cook a elaborate solid food breakfast. You're in a hurry. So um, whey shake, you know, if you get the macros right, lots of protein, carbs and fats are pretty low. Uh, if you weigh out convenience and sustainability and taste and and how easy it is, uh, you know, you have to make stuff really easy. If, if it's too hard, you're just not going to do it. So it has to be just as easy to get the healthy food as it is to get the junk food. And that's why I do like Whey shakes, for example, for people who are in a hurry. I'm not a big fan of juicing because it usually removes the fiber from fruits and vegetables. And I really think that fiber is helpful. So I would prefer a smoothie and a blender where all of the fiber in the fruits are um, incorporated. Like basically I'll make a protein smoothie with some you know, low calorie, low fat and low carb milk, some frozen raspberries, a couple of scoops of whey powder, put it in my blender, you know, my Vitamix or my Ninja or whatever, and blend it up. And I've got all the fiber from those raspberries in there. And it has an incredible satiety per calorie. And it's like, you know, it's a seven out of 10. It's not as good as Haagen-Dazs or Ben and Jerry's, I'll admit, which is a 10, but it's good enough that I can actually do that. And it's pretty easy, but juicing, I'm not as uh, excited about because all of the uh, fiber gets removed or most of it, a lot of it. And so it's just not as good in my opinion. And we mentioned intermittent fasting and fasting. What's your opinion on that? So I think uh, fasting is a little bit beneficial, but just ever so slightly. We have a lot of studies now looking at uh, intermittent fasting versus just continuous caloric reduction within eating window. 
the the intermittent fasting is slightly beneficial, but just a tiny bit. So you, no one has to do it. Uh, there's also diminishing returns. The longer you fast, the worse your results are going to be. So I like a very light intermittent fast, like a 16, 8, and 8-hour eight eating window maybe at the most uh, for fasting. Uh, but it, nobody has to do that. It's not that helpful. As we finish up, the last question is, if you're going to do intermittent fasting, do you fast all day and then eat, or do you fast at night, eat during the day, and then fast, you know, at six o'clock, five o'clock before you go to bed? Well, well, when we compare early versus late eating window, the early eating window is better. If you eat earlier in the day, you usually have better results, but it's such a tiny difference that it really is uh, over overwhelmed by just what's more convenient for your schedule. So whatever works for you, I say go for it because it's just a tiny 1% difference between early or late windowing. I want to thank Dr. Ted Naiman for joining me today and last week. He's has great information. You know, you might have to listen to this podcast as it comes out after the radio show a couple of times to get all the information, but he's amazing. If people want to find out more about you, how can they do it? All right. I'm on all the socials at Ted Naiman. I'm on Twitter at Ted Naiman, Instagram at Ted Naiman. You can go to tednaiman.com. I wrote a book called The PE Diet, and it's available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, or thepediet.com. You can buy it online there. And Ted is in my movie, Open Your Eyes. So come watch our movie, Open Your Eyes with Dr. Kerry Gelb and look us up at drkerrygelb.com. Ted, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today.